everybody. Welcome back to Talking Motorcycles. I'm Tom Connors, and my guest today is Sam Lang and Manny Bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, say hello, boys. Hello. What's up, everybody? Hi. Uh, due to COVID and uh, an ocean in between, I can't sit down with these guys in person, so we're doing this over the internet. Um, so please excuse the audio quality, but it's way better than nothing. These guys I met in San Diego, California, and they were starting out on a trip to head all the way down to the bottom of South America. They were, one of them was working on a project I was working on, and I guess you guys were just buddies from the homeland that met up in San Diego to kind of start the trip off, right? Yeah, so so I met um, Tom, he working on a, a refit of an old motor yacht, um, from 1936, which had been picked up by a wealthy owner and was in need of a lot of love. So that got taken to San Diego and was in the midst of, I think, in all, it was about a two-year complete gut and rebuild of the, the boat to bring it up to modern specs and make it nice again. And so, uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Joseph Bowick, who Tom is also good friends with now. Mm -hmm. It was the engineer on that boat. And so I was fortunate enough um, because I already kind of had plans in the making for, for starting the trip from there in San Diego and then just very fortuitously had a friend join a boat in San Diego and was able to provide me with five months work in the lead up to leaving on the trip. So I was able to be there preparing for the trip and getting paid and so that all yeah worked out very nicely there was a major incredible level of jealousy on my end watching you guys you're basically prepping your bikes for this journey and i was like man i should be going with these guys screw this boat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so i basically <clears throat> i um i think sam's had sort of brought the idea to me of this trip when i was at that time i was working in london um, as a civil engineer and I was just finishing up a big project. So I was working on um, basically at the extension of one of the um, underground lines in London. And um, I didn't really have plans to do anything else after that. The, the kind of the opportunities for me to stay in London weren't that great. Um, and it sounded like the sort of thing that I would never, I mean, it's, it's nothing that I'd ever uh, sort of, anticipated doing I'd, I'd never really ridden motorbikes before and i just guessed if i didn't say yes and come along i, I was never going to do it again which is i'm sure is true so i uh i finished that project in london i think i flew straight out straight out to san diego after that just around the time that you were sort of coming to an end of your work right yeah i think you were there for the last last couple was it two, three weeks probably before we set off? Um, we're finishing touches together on some, some, yeah, the bike story, the last minute bike story. These are Hondas, story. right? Yeah, correct. Honda. So three matching Honda XR400Rs, um, which were produced by Honda from, I think, 1997, I think. Yeah, 97 through to about 2004, 2005. So we had, we had them from varying years from 98 to 2001, I think. 
but they're um, but all utilizing the same parts in reality. All identicals, yeah. They yeah. didn't change over those years, so that yeah, they we had maybe three years difference in bike age, but none of them were different plastics. That was about it. Um, and so yeah, the the story of the the bikes before leaving was quite interesting because we originally purchased two Honda XR400s for myself and John. So that as well as myself and Manuel, we had a third friend, Jonathan Sudano, who lives in San Diego, uh, who I met working on boats. And he was really the originator. He planted the seed uh, to go on the trip. Best kind of friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I'd done a trip a road trip with him before by car. He, he moved from New York to San Diego and I joined him moving all his stuff in his Jeep. I joined him in Atlanta and did a road trip from there to California. So I'd done a bit of a trip with him before. So he knew that I would be keen to do those kind of things. And he, as well as Manuel also hadn't really done any motorcycle riding before, but he knew I was into bikes and would be keen to do a bike trip. So he called me one day, hit me up and said, yo, I'm thinking of, doing a motorbike trip, California, all the way down to Ujwaya, maybe back up to Buenos Aires. Are you keen? And he, uh, obviously I said yes straight away. I was like, I'll, I'll drop anything to go do a trip like I'm that. in. I'm totally yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the prior to Manuel getting to San Diego, it was myself and John um, were the first two really that were going to do the trip. It was just going to be us two. And then I knew Manuel would also probably be keen and maybe available at that time. And he's also a fluent Spanish speaker, as you may have gleaned from his name, Manuel. Yes. Um, so I thought, what a perfect third person to add to the group, as well as a Yank and a Brit that really would have bumbled our way through otherwise. A very invaluable uh, talent to have. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the only talent I brought to the table. Yeah, <laughs> we were <It> handy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, each of us had had our different qualities to bring. So Manuel was the the translator for the trip. Myself being a an engineer on board boats and having good mechanical knowledge, I was the mechanic and fixer upper and making sure the bikes ran. And John was he was the loose cannon amongst the whole lot. <laughs> the wild card American. Yeah, he was the driving force behind everything, trying to... The mo uh, motivator yeah, and... Uh, getting yeah. us moving every day. Yeah. Tapping yeah, we stones. couldn't have done it without him, or it, we would have done it a lot more slowly and probably not made it, maybe. I don't know. He was <laughs> he was a good addition. Or, well, yeah, he was great. So, yeah. So, that was the, uh, the original two. Yeah, myself, myself and John. And then we got... Um, we bought bikes, 200 XR400s in San Diego, found them on Craigslist. Um, and then I was riding one around in San Diego, commuting to and from the boat before going away on the trip. And I managed to blow up an engine. Yeah, so... It, uh, Blowing not, up the engine. Not, yeah, not true to form in being a mechanic and understanding how motors were. I think I had been a bit lazy and not kept it topped up with oil. So I was riding into work one morning doing 70 miles an hour on the, the freeway in San Diego, only to have my back wheel lock up on me and the whole engine stopped dead. Um, 
and so yeah that that was the start of what we ended up needing four XR400s basically is what <laughs> went into making the trip so we bought one one more for myself which I needed then Manuel arrived and we bought a third bike then for him uh, then, well actually before we got his third bike I, I spent about two months completely rebuilding the, the engine on the XR400 that I blew up so we took it on the time I killed it, we took it to a mechanic in Ocean Beach in San Diego and uh, gave it to a guy there that John knew. And he opened it up and took one look at it and didn't want anything to do with it. He's <laughs> like, man. Yeah. He was like, nah, not a chance. He's like, that's you scrap. Don't even bother. And me being uh, strong-minded and whatever, I was like, well, no, I'll, I'll give it a go myself. Why not? never rebuilt a bike in my life. So then I ordered parts off eBay, Amazon, and by hook or by crook, got a, you know, got a manual, <laughs> stripped the whole thing and rebuilt everything from the ground up. I mean, it's a shame we can't do photos of a podcast, but the inside of the engine was just laced with aluminium shards and the whole works. And so, but I managed to re rebuild it, get it back up and running, and it lasted for about one weekend and in my hastiness to rebuild it, I'd taken a few shortcuts. I didn't do um, valve lapping or anything like that. That oh. was kind of a bit, like, yeah, probably yeah. Yeah, important things. Okay. And I didn't, one of the major ones was not replacing the bearings, really. I replaced just about everything except the bearings. That obviously, it needed a new piston, cylinder, all of that, because that was completely destroyed. And then the bearings I attempted to sort of clean out with a parts cleaner, but it's not too easy to get aluminium shards out from behind bearings, I guess. I no, so. it's a, that's a <laughs> so special it running, skill itself. Yeah, it was running. So when I flew in San Diego, that you'd sort of done all this before I arrived. And I didn't actually know really what the plan was at the time. So I flew in and was told, oh, yeah, we've already got a bike for you. And, you, and, and we took, and it was this bike, <laughs> the ringer. Um, and it, you were sort of right at the end of your sort of rebuild tether. So yeah. it was you hadn't really started it up yet. I think I, I first day I came to the boatyard where where you were keeping the bike and doing all the work on it. Um, that was the day you started it up, and it did start up, and it was running. We I think about, it ran we about pretty well, week, right? Yeah, we had a weekend's riding out of it, and then I think it was maybe. A handful of days before we were due to leave and um, we, we came back to the shipyard and Manuel was riding and it started making a, a not too healthy whining squeaking noise yeah coming from inside it and so it was it was still running but when you're about to embark on a trip of that scale you probably want to have a bike you know is good to go and, <laughs> and hasn't just been destroyed and rebuilt and is now whining away underneath you um, yeah, I didn't. I felt quite nervous about starting off on a trip like that with a handicap or something that was, you know, yeah, understandably so. Yeah. So um, I think we just decided straight away to like get on. Yeah, that's Gumtree or whatever it is that you have in the fourth Honda came in. Yeah, Craigslist, looking for yeah. on Sean Craigslist. Yeah, so we Sean in LA. That guy. <laughs> we found we found what looked like a really nice, well kept. I think it was a two thousand and one model. Um, 
So we drove up to, the three of us drove up to LA to sort of got ourselves a U-Haul trailer. Yeah. Nice. Bike tow and everything, yeah. Took the pilgrimage up, up to LA and took this bike out for a test and um, in our rush again to uh, needing a bike within the next couple of days to leave. We, so we looked at it, checked it over. I rode it around the block and the, the engine, everything ran fine and it sounded nice, looked nice. But the only thing with it is that it had a flat front tire and then the, I don't know if it was both front and rear, the, the valve, the air valve on the tire had been like lost inside the rim. Oh. Obviously. It was on the front tire. Yeah. Yeah. And so he told us about that, but we didn't really inspect it very closely. And then it wasn't until we got back to San Diego that we realized that both rims were <laughs> cracked. <laughs> yeah. So he'd obviously done some pretty cool tricks with it at some point. <laughs> the Sean guy, he was a bit of a shady character, and then we were cursing ourselves for not for not being better at checking it out. Um, but then that was all all part of the fun. So then what essentially happened was that between Manuel's slightly dud bike from Sean with the cracked rims and the bike with the engine that I destroyed, we had two enough working parts of two Honda XR 400 yeah. that we were able to do a bit of a Frankenstein's monster and we were robbing like carbs off one bike, mm -hmm. rims off another bike. And so there was this scene out the back of John's apartment in San Diego in this little courtyard with just bike parts everywhere, propped up on benches and yeah, three guys just trying their best to prepare for i mean your poor, your <laughs> poor bike that you'd spent so long trying to rebuild just got gutted not yeah. just well the, the, only a few things for my bike really but then everything else was was taken for spares on the road or what we could so we had spare took, had like two spare carburetor we took didn't we yeah it meant we had a, an awful lot of spare because i had leftovers as well from the rebuild that i did um so yeah i left with the extremely extensive set of a spare part of just about everything and the knowledge at that point of rebuilding an entire engine. Um, so I was kind of in my head, I was prepped. I was like, I can I'll rebuild one of these things at the side of the road. If I <laughs> there's definitely, definitely a silver lining to that. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely a good exercise there that you're going to have, you know, you, you have an experience with it at that point. Yeah. And the intention of having the same model of bike was, was, was for that to yeah. be able to swap and you know, interchange parts and exactly oh yeah that's make super smart way less things to carry less tools that's a smart move yeah. on your part you say that but if if you <laughs> saw <laughs> there's such there would be a massive contrast in how we set off i mean i i got i did ask for advice about because i i'm a complete novice really i'd i'd done a very small bike trip with sam in um Sri Lanka, like a three-day trip mm -hmm. on um, it was that. That was basically the first time I'd ridden a motorbike, and it was a small yeah, one, we, two, we had, five we had pulsar. We had three <laughs> pulsar motorbikes. I think we had a one, a one, two, five, a one fifty, and a one eighty. There were three of us. My friend Luca, yeah, who came to Sri Lanka with us. It was a, it was a surf trip, really. But Sam had time off. At, I think around the same time and mm -hmm. wanted to come. So we ended up doing a trip on bikes up to 
Mount Ella, which is like inland of Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And I guess that sort of was the catalyst for me getting kind of interested in motorbikes and and, and it was a very easy and leisurely trip, really. Yeah, um, the contrast between that and our, our later, we, we just looked the other day through some photos and a, a picture came up from that little three-day trip of Manuel, this little, like, 130cc bike, just a single backpack strapped <laughs> on the tank, shorts and T-shirt. Like a, That's all you need. Skull, yeah, a skull <laughs> cap on top of his head. And, uh, sense of adventure in his head. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and... It, Fast forward a couple of years, and next thing we're heavily laning bikes so much that we're borderline bottoming out our suspension trying to set off from San Diego with a, a lot more lessons to be learned at that point. Yeah, we had spare tires, we had fuel sort of what did, like yeah, jerry five, cans five gallon, <laughs> two five gallon jerry cans hanging off the back that we we had so many warnings of people of like oh you'll, you'll get down to baja and there'll be you know three four hundred mile stretches there won't be any gas around you'll like you'll, you're gonna run out of gas you'll need this so we would come prepared for running out of fuel at, at every step and then that they soon got shared when you know, we'd got a few countries we, in and never needed them once. And we're like, right, we offload that to someone at a gas station. That's okay. Those, they pay for themselves in that way. Lighten yeah. the load. <laughs> yeah. And we did. That was one mod we had. We, we all had bigger tanks. That's something we, we put on yeah. the bikes because I guess the, your stock tank on an XR400 is pretty small. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Well, so, just, so you get all the bikes set up, all the gear loaded, obviously mega fuel set up too. And you guys go across the border and this journey starts. That must have been some level of like, oh God, what are we doing? For me, definitely getting on the bike, uh, like with all the gear on and realizing that I was struggling just to ride out of John's street. I was like, oh my God. What the <laughs> I, in my head, I was like, can I tell them? Or, like, I, I don't think I could do this trip. <laughs> I can't ride. I don't know how to ride a motorbike with all this stuff on it. And I mean, I'm pretty uh, calm and collected person, take things in my stride. But I was, I was quite worried that I'd sort of bitten off more than I could chew. And I guess the fact, I think I was just a bit ignorant to how big of a trip it was going to be. And, and that allowed me to sort of just say yes. I think if I'd done a bit more research and been a bit more savvy, I probably would have thought it's, uh, this is like something I'm going to do once I've actually got a motorbike license, maybe <laughs> have one of those. Yeah, but there's the fun uh, there. So I was, I, fun fact, I was the only rider in the trip that had a motorbike license, neither John or Manuel should have been on the road on motorbikes in any country legally, but whatever, it's not, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the telling moments of the other guys um yeah there's then understanding what we were getting into was a few days before leaving whilst we're preparing and we're getting all our gear together um and then getting you know knee pads and elbow pads a little bit as well we, we set off a, a bit over cautious with things like that and then jettison them on the way but then when we were getting you know protective gear I said Manuel and John, one of them asked a question about, oh, are we going to need that or do we, do we need things like that? And I said to them, I was like, well, we're going to, there's going to be quite a few crashes on the way down, you know, we're going to be falling off, there's going to be this, that and the other happening. 
both Manuel and John turned to me with shock on their faces and they were like, what do you mean there's going to be crashes? <laughs> I was kidding. I was like, you, you realize we're riding all the way through Central and South America on dirt bikes. We're going to be doing stupid stuff. We're going to be having fun. And there's, I, I mean, I've ridden bike, bikes on the road and come off without even trying to do stupid things. So I was like, that's just part of it that you know you accept that you're going to be falling off you're going to be laying face down in the dirt yes. at some point yes it's not they, if it's when exactly and they those two hadn't even clocked that by that point they were you know getting ready to leave and they thought they were just going to be sitting pretty upright the whole way down i mean we learned that very, <laughs> we, i think we learned that very quickly i think we lasted probably day one without a crash and then uh but that Baja, that that stretch was sort of a, a good learning curve for us and kind of where... You probably want to hear what Crash 1 was then. Oh, well, yeah, we do. <laughs> that was... <laughs> I think it was day two, riding through Baja. I'm at the front of the group. I've got Manuel and John behind me, and we're going through a, a little Mexican... Um, like a village, not not even a town really, you know, there's a few houses either side, there's probably a school in this town, and so it's, a, it's just a straight road with a few speed bumps on, and so there's a little bit of traffic, we get slowed up behind some trucks. Um, and I'm riding along, I go over a speed bump, but next thing I just hear a, a clatter, and I turn around, and John is, John's bike's gone down, he's sliding along the road, Manuel's turning around, looking around, and what's happened is Manuel has slowed down for a truck which is slowed for a speed bump. John's too busy taking in the sights. He's not paying any attention. And he's ridden straight into the back of Manuel's bike. <laughs> oh, no way. Off himself. He's laying in the, like, hopping around, laying in the road, hurt his knee. Manuel was completely okay. But, yeah, so they went from not expecting a crash to day two, one of us crashing into the other one of us, which is just about as, yeah, classic as you could get, really. <laughs> any serious and, damage uh, to the bike? No, I think, no, they're, they're extremely robust, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So they, the bikes didn't get dented as much as probably John's pride and his knee. Poor <laughs> 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 guy, his knee was sat, but the side of the road, his knee was all sort of busted up and swollen for a few days. It, it came okay in the end. I think the the, the only the main um, casualty of that was John's camelback. <laughs> He stopped at the side of the road and took all his gear off, and then we 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 got ready, got set off again, and then got a few hundred meters down the road, and then he realised he didn't have his Camelback on anymore for his water, right. and he said, "Oh no, I've got to go back for it." Turn around and went back, and that was gone. Someone had already swiped it. But apart from that, no, it was it wasn't too bad. That one was Baja pretty easy going after that. Uh, <laughs> I think it, Baja is where we learn a lot of lessons. Yeah. It was like uh, where the stabilizers came off and like it was a good sort of introduction, like a mini trip to to the big trip. When we crossed the border, and this was the first border we crossed, we, I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking, I was excited and I mean... John had more of a sort of plan of where we were going and like mm -hmm. had a bit more of an itinerary and like knew, knew sort of some of the major stops along the way. But what, what we didn't realise at the time and we didn't find out until we got all the way down to the bottom of Baja where we were intending on getting a ferry over to the mainland. So from, I think it's La Paz, uh, 
where was Mazatlan. When you cross the border into Mexico, you just get told to drive through. So we did, we did that, and um, as it turns out, we didn't do any of the appropriate um, paperwork. So we didn't have the correct stamps on our passports. Nice. We didn't have um, our import paperwork done. So you, you need temporary import paperwork. Something we should definitely know if we're going to go <laughs> do a sort of 20,000 kilometer trip through eight, nine countries. I think that's probably one of the sort of yeah basic. Top, top of the list. Yeah, it gives you an idea of the level of actual research and planning we we put into the trip itself <laughs> apart from getting, making sure we had three bikes and three men mm-hmm. um yeah so we we got all the way down to to la paz and then tried so as i'm sure a lot of if we've got any californians listening to this or anyone from the southern states they know that baja is basically a, a bit of an extension of the states you get free reign you can cross and drive all the Baja and you don't need temporary import permits or anything like that. You're just welcomed in and because there's obviously a lot of people that go for fun rides down in the deserts and the sand down there. And it's like wanna, a weekend destination, yeah, isn't it? Good surfing. Make and... that more accessible to people. Um, and so then it's not until you attempt to then get to the mainland of Mexico via the ferry that when you're boarding the ferry, this then they say, right, well, now you need to have a temporary import permit you need to have this that and the other um and so we we didn't have those and you can't ascertain those at um in la paz you have to have done that at the border crossing border. yeah um and so then we were faced with having to go all the way back to the order again having completed our, our first leg through Baja so we we actually ended up traversing the length of Baja three times back and forth first by motorbike then we did a bolted two-day drive we drove 24 hours up and back in a rental car that we got so as not to abuse our bikes too much because we just put them through the mill going through deserts and you know we were like it, it, i think it took us about eight nine days maybe 10 days to get to the bottom we weren't yeah. rushing it and um i think yeah we rented a car and blitzed it up i think we were sort of doing six hour shifts of driving and then you, you got maybe 12 hours off in the back seat <laughs> or for a bit of sleep and yeah that that car didn't stop other than for gas i guess for petrol and then it was (laughs) i mean well i can't i i remember it as quite a fun little trip but it It can't have been we we did the full length of baja up and back in a rental car in the space of about 30 hours that's pretty good that may be a record i'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) stand so we um yeah, we got, I think we went back to Tijuana and got our temporary import permits <laughs> sorted for the bike, which is all we thought we needed. It returned all the way back down with the rental car, dropped it off. We then make our second attempt to board the ferry with our temporary import permits in hand, only to find um, that you're not allowed to, 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 you have to bring in, you can only bring in one vehicle per person 
uh, into the country and that vehicle needs to be registered in your own name. Oh, and no. So when we purchased the bikes, <laughs> yeah, when we purchased the bikes in California, the logic prevailing at the time was that, well, John's a Californian resident. It's got an address. We're both British. Surely the easiest thing to do is register all the bikes in his name so that we don't have to deal with the paperwork of being foreign citizens trying to trying to register bikes in the United States. So we put them all in John's name. And so it wasn't then until trip two down Baja, trying to get to the mainland that we find out we need to each have ownership of our own bikes. So then comes trip number three, the full length. We then fly, we, we get plane <laughs> tickets and fly all the way back to Tijuana, then hop across the border back into San Diego because now we have to go to the um, DMV to go and get all the bikes changed into our respective names officially. Yeah. Um, which we kicked ourselves for because we go into the DMV and we meet this, there's this lovely lady working at the counter there and she's just, it makes it the easiest thing in the world. She's like, oh, you know, you guys don't worry. She's like, I'll put, you know, put this, what's your details? And we're like, oh, we're not really from here, but we can give you John's address. She's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And so half an hour later, and I think about $19.50 each, and we walked out with paperwork in hand. Yay. It was so easy. I mean, I was slightly worried because I didn't have the bike license and I didn't want to open a can of worms there. Yeah. But um, it was, and I'd heard sort of, a lot of nightmares, sort of stories of the DMV yeah. and how bad it could be. But it was, uh, it took no time at all and um, it was done. And um, you're on just, your way. Just, we were just kind of felt so stupid. We were like hemorrhaging money and we basically, <laughs> it was like two weeks into our trip and we were, we were basically back in San Diego. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it wasn't a good start, but, um, but that, that's the one, the silver lining to that is that by this point we realized how overpacked and how overladen we were with the bikes and all this stuff that we didn't need. So we'd had a nice week, week and a half trip down through Baja. And then the second time when we had to fly back, it meant we were each able to take like a big bag of luggage back with us, drop all that off at John's house. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, so that was that was one perk. Lightened the load. We because we met a nice nice sort of couple of people from from um, Santa Cruz where we were able to leave our motorbikes. Mm -hmm. um, you guys also picked up some other. I think you got he's got tires and tires and bits yeah. and pieces for your bikes when we were in in San Diego. So we it was a, yeah there were some benefits to the sort of stupidity. And then when we did fly back, we third third try is the charm, I guess, and we we yeah. had everything we needed, and um, I guess we learned all those lessons the hard way. But I don't think we had any issues that in any of the sort of following borders, did we? No, not nothing, nothing critical really. Only the, I mean, quite a few times I managed to misplace stamp-sized pieces of paper that supposedly you're meant to be keeping hold of. and I Most important stuff right there. They do, yeah. They make it nice and small and seem really irrelevant. And then you get used, because obviously every border crossing you go through, you have to you go through the process twice. So mm -hmm. essentially you're obviously leaving one country, you have to you know, close out your import permits and everything and get your passport stamped out. And then you 
go through that approach to your next border and then you've got to go through the signing and process and so between one border and another there's you always get given you know a whole handful of bits of paper that you're meant to keep hold of and yeah a couple of times you make it through to the second border and they say, oh, we need this, <laughs> this piece of paper and John and Manuel, but which, yeah, we'll give you like, like problem. Weeks and they're standing there going, Jesus, I know, I'm pretty sure I did have that, but I haven't seen it for at least half an hour, <laughs> <laughs> rummaging through all my stuff. And then, yeah, next thing you know, you've either got to go back and it's cost you a couple of hours, that stupid mistake, or you're having to pay like $25, $30 fine of some sort for not not being smart enough to keep hold of a wee bit of paper. It's obviously not something that we have to deal with here in the States. Like you just go state to state to state and never think about it. And it's the same thing in the EU. You just drive yeah, exactly. country to country to country. From, yeah. And that's, I think that was a lot of our unpreparedness going into it, riding down through Baja, et cetera, was that was our experience was exactly what you just said prior to that. John from the States driving through states obviously never had any issues and then in for myself and Manuel both being European we're used to you know mainland Europe rental cars or whatever you go across borders and there's not even they don't even check your car paperwork you know it's it's pretty much open mm-hmm. um, so we'd never really been through that before um, but yeah by the end of it how many countries did we go through 13 14. Yeah, I mean, I knew I knew that we would um, visas. I just didn't realize how. I mean, a border crossing basically would take up most of the day. Yeah. Uh, so you, you would. The immigration was the easy part. It was the documentation of the bikes that was more complicated. They'd come and check sort of serial numbers and things like that, and and it always took a long time. And I think it was. Like at, at this time, we were crossing through Central America. It was exactly the same time that there was a big uh, caravan of people coming from Venezuela up through Central America, trying mm-hmm. to make it to the states. Mm-hmm. So these um, these borders were just apps. I mean, I I have no sort of experience to contrast it to, like maybe before that, but these these borders were just absolutely swamped with people and it was so busy and a lot of stressed people coming the other way and a lot of sort of um, overworked immigration officers, I guess, and border police. And it was just, it was quite, that was sort of the most stressful parts of the trip, I think, in Central America. For me, crossing crossing through border crossing days, sort of having having to leave your bike out, um, which has everything you own for the trip all your stuff and you know having to go into the offices and leaving your we didn't have any sort of proper lockable luggage did we or anything like that so just worrying about things getting taken or it was quite um it was yeah it was uh it was difficult and i think we just got used to it as well like they were, yeah they're like admin days weren't they because the other days you're you know you're riding to a place so you're doing a bit of riding you're camping somewhere and you're you're hanging out whereas the the border crossing day was always you knew it was coming up and it's like right we're gonna be there's gonna be at least three to five hours here of just standing in lines and finding our way to obscure hidden um, corner shops that had photocopiers because none of the none of the borders will photocopy anything for you. They'll always of course, yeah. 
you'll arrive there and they'll say, oh, we need this, that, and the other paperwork, um, but you can't do that here, so you've got to now what, find... What was the border that was the hardest to get through? Like, what took the longest? Oh. Not including... Uh, being one of the borders in Central America, I guess, I mean, in theory, the crossing from... Panama to Colombia took the longest, but that that was purely because it was that was different again. That was um, that involved shipping the bikes <laughs> and containers to yeah. to get to. So that I mean that's different. But I found uh, it, I think at some point through Central America, maybe the first one into Guatemala, just because it was new to us and. Yeah. Um, didn't realize how i mean we got we we got to this queue of cars that sort of i'm glad we didn't stop yeah, for them it's all those ones that are being taken to, to be sold yeah there yeah. was a kind of they take a lot of um sort of crashed and wrecked cars i don't know where it's if it starts in the states or mexico and they then trans transport them across the borders um further south to Know, to rebuild them or just but maybe they get better scrap value there so there was a, a funny border we're winding down this hill and there's about a five mile line days of, i mean that yeah, was those people must have been sat there for goodness knows how long and each, so each alternating cars was a a working car and then a complete trash car behind it that they were towing wow and then another the whole way along and that just yeah not businesses just like people that do that to make a bit of cash i guess yeah, um, but definitely central Central America is where the slow and more painstaking borders are, and then when you get to South America, there's less there's less foot traffic and less um, the borders aren't quite so strict or tight because they're more affluent countries for the most part, and there's not as much. Um, sort of migration going on down there. So when once you get to Peru, Chile, Argentina, they're all they they still take a while, but it's it's a lot easier. There's less faff and much less crowded. Um, so the Southern American borders were yeah a breeze. Really looking back once once we were doing those and comparing them to the Central American, um, there was quite a big contrast between those. And that's also where having Manuel, by the time we got to South America, I, my Spanish had improved a lot, so I was able to handle that. But yeah, definitely the first borders going through Central America, if it had just been me and John, goodness knows how much longer it would have taken again. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. So that's definitely, that was definitely handy for the group um, to, to have me there for sure. Yeah. I think you just avoid so much confusion and uh um you know the potential to be taken because there are a lot of people there there's kind of people at at the borders that you can't really work out if they're actually working there or if they're so there's a lot of people that sort of are there to try and help other travelers that maybe don't know what's going on and they'll take a fee and, and help you sort of take you to the to get your documents photocopied and know yeah, but it's not that clear who is who is officially there working and who's not. And I think, yeah, it was it was definitely that's probably why it was a bit more of a 
stressful day for me because I was doing <laughs> it three times over, basically. Yeah, you were the fixer. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. just involved the blank faces of myself and John turning to him every two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what was that they said in my mouth? Yeah. Translate that, please. <laughs> um, but they were, yeah, they, they, they were just bit busy and tiring days. And um, we were always sort of trying, we'd always get to borders early because we knew that it might take a long time. And then um, we were sort of, I think at the start of the trip, more cautious to not be riding at night. And um, we didn't always know where we were going to stop the next day, like where we were going to camp. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there were definitely a few borders that we didn't get out until it was yeah. dark. Okay. <laughs> um, and our bikes had very, very bad light systems. They had, they had, they, yeah, they had terrible lights if the lights were working, which I think was maybe about 60% of the time the light, on my bike at least, was working. And when it was on, it, it, it wasn't even worth being on anyway. Yeah, They're more to be seen versus to see with. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So we were de well, there was a lot of riding, uh, using sort of the other two you know you i think quite often you'd be in the middle of the pack yeah and john would be shining <laughs> a light on you and you'd sort of just have to trust where i'm going and hope there aren't any big potholes or yeah there was there were quite a few teamwork rides and that's it and that <laughs> which was well they weren't too bad on the road but there were a few times when that happened when we were going through trails just we you know we like you were saying before, not even on border crossing days, but when you you lost track of time in a day and then you, you were searching, you hadn't really picked out a camp spot necessarily. And next thing, the sun's gone down and we're riding through muddy dirt roads and it gets dark and we're still trying to find a good, appropriate place to stop. And I'm there, you know, my headlight's not working and I'm mm -hmm. trying to see these two guys going down muddy dirt paths. <laughs> the next thing they just both burn off because they can see and they can ride and they kind of forget that they've got someone that couldn't see anything behind them. Hey, wait and for next, me. Yeah, you, you can see some lights about 300 feet ahead of you and you're, you're just sort of, I guess I'm pootling along now just trying to stay upright, really. What was it like was, camping in the middle of nowhere? It was... I loved it really. It was, um, yeah, we got pretty good at picking out like scenic and beautiful camp spots. So after, after a while you get really good with Google maps, you just get, you put it in satellite mode and then from an aerial view, because even in, in South America, same as in the States, like a lot of the land is still privately owned mm -hmm. and fenced off. Whatever. So that, like, it, it is much easier to find camp spots there than in, in other countries. But um, yeah, you get really good at just looking at an aerial view and kind of spotting clearings or areas that look, look open and what that might be hidden away from, yeah. from people that are going to have like you know, amazing view next to rivers or in mountains and what have you. And so, yeah, we, we camped in some unbelievable places, really. Yeah, and we were traveling down through, I mean, the, our bikes aren't very quick. So we were driving through B, we were kind of making a, an effort to stick to sort of B, smaller roads, mm -hmm. trails. So that, that in itself kind of 
allowed you to find cool i think sometimes we find somewhere a bit early in the day and just decide uh, you know we'll just stay here we didn't yeah. really have uh time it's hard to have a t- you know to stick to a re- sort of um schedule when you're going that far so we 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 sort of would just yeah f- find places halfway through the day yeah there are days where we didn't make many kilometers weren't there and then yeah. other days i guess where we we'd ride to a specific place we were riding to a town for example i think every it was quite nice every now and then to to sort of plan ahead if we're going to stay in a bigger town maybe get an airbnb and that was somewhere that we could maybe do a bit of give the bikes a bit of tlc we'd have place to do some laundry proper shower uh, buy any little parts that have an actual shower yeah Yeah. it is very hot and humid through central america camping we had ha- we all had hammocks, which were cities, sort of cities, cities tended to be Airbnbs and hostels, and then everything in between was pretty much camping, just free camp. We didn't we never camped in any campsites, so it was all just you know riding off into farmland. I think we a majority of it was done hammocking simply because that was less hassle than putting up and breaking down a tent. That's good, um, yeah, and less to carry as well. Yeah. But we did. We also had the tent, <laughs> so we had those because obviously if it rains. But well, we did. We were prepared for that too because we had um, we had hammocks. And then once we realised that rain mattered when it came to hammocks, we stopped and bought a, a tarp each, tarp all in, so that we could th- and some string, so that we could then set up the hammock. And then we would just rig up a, a tarp over the hammocks to keep the rain off in that event. Rudimentary uh, rain fly. Exactly, which worked great, but then the only problem with that was then obviously not everywhere has trees or places to hang hammocks. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you end up in the middle of the desert and you need a tent for yeah. that point because you there's not anywhere to hang a hammock and there's not anywhere around for you to stay. Um, and then that's when throwing up the tent was perfect. And luckily for us, I guess, Central America is, they love football or soccer, and uh, goalposts are perfect hammock oh. spots. We we would find a lot of uh, sort of rural football pitches and, mm. and stay there. Yeah. Um, obviously, one pitch is only enough for two, two hammocks. So yeah. We'd always have someone up high and someone low, <laughs> and then someone up the other end. <laughs> I think we swapped around a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it was. I think I was a bit cautious at first of of camping out in sort of mainland Mexico and I'd heard sort of stories, but it was pretty, it was just, it was a great way to, it was a great way to, to sort of see Mexico. We had a few times where we were sort of work, woken up at night by people with, you know, sort of farmers with, I think there was one evening that we had, cause you're tired when you, you set up camp and you're, you're all ready to sort of relax. I think I was washing my teeth with a head torch and um, you guys were maybe, or I don't know if you were getting ready to start a fire or something like that. And I could hear some rustling in the bushes. We were kind of way out in the middle of nowhere. There were no, that I could see there were no houses or towns and we were quite mm-hmm. far from anywhere really. And um, I was sort of greeted by 
flashlights and someone with a holding a pistol and someone holding a kind of uh, rifle. I think they were, I mean, they, they obviously were very scary and started shouting at me. Um, and the minute they realized that I was, well, I'm a Castellano Spanish, so they can tell that I'm, you know, a European Spanish guy. I think they relaxed and they, they were just worried that we were there to steal yeah. cattle or they thought we were someone else. But it's, um, I think that happened a few times where sort of farmers would come and check up on us. Yeah. And there was a, there was a handful of times as well that we'd had the police got, or the police, because yeah. people would, you know, they'd see they're, they're very loud bikes and, you know, you'd see three guys ride off into some land somewhere on these loud dirt bikes and they think you're up to no good. Of course. Um, but every, yeah, whenever they, we'd had police call and ask or people come over and ask us what we're up to. And as soon as, as soon as you speak to them, and it, it obviously benefits speaking Spanish if you're there and speaking in a foreign language, that doesn't help the peace, the, the stress at all. But as soon as you get chatting to them and they realize you're just tourists and you're like, oh yeah, we just need a place to camp. Never once did we have any issues. It immediately, they were always fine with it police never had any issues with us and mm -hmm. it was, you know. yeah, all the people we met were very the, the 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 mexican police or all the police through the trip really and the military and and the people are just very helpful and and most of them were really enthusiastic and sort of excited to hear about our trip and i think um quite often like really eager to help i think i mean we were we were pretty um like we didn't have, we don't have, we didn't have the best of bikes or the best of gear and kind of probably, probably I think some of them probably felt a bit sorry for us, <laughs> a bit crazy because obviously you see uh, a lot of sort of more well-equipped sort of older people doing, doing the trip, you know, with big yeah. GSs and all the, all the sort of gear. Yeah. And I think um, maybe, maybe people were a bit, a uh, bit more, helpful for, to us just because they <laughs> worried about oh, sorry for these, these sorry looking dirty what are you doing yeah um dirty men that didn't know what the hell they were doing with questionable mustaches yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. stupid yellow sunglasses that i was wearing the, um yeah we got invited into a, a few homes slept on slept on hard tile floors and and what have you there's yeah. some nice experiences of that get you know, fa with families and well they come and come out and chat to you and then there's they're like oh well come come by the house in the morning we'll make you coffee and breakfast and so you were you know you camp on their football field and then the next morning go over to the, their house meet all the kids and have a shower in their outhouse and they're always yeah really 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 friendly bunch and that's what i what makes such a great trip you know doing a trip like that with motorbikes and putting yourself out there like you know i've met people along the way and they do a lot of camping in um in established campgrounds and you know they're still camping along the way and mm -hmm. like that but they're, they're doing it a bit more by the book and using i overlander and things like that to find places that are you know welcome you to pay a fee and camp there um but what i love so much about us free camping the whole way and just camping in the wild and in people's backyards is that we met so many great people and were 
welcomed into so many yeah. people's homes and people want to hear what you're up to and come chat to you and it makes for a much i feel like a much more authentic you know travel experience yeah. actually the local people and understanding what what makes them tick and what you know how, how did you do with just speaking english yourself i so at the, the start i my spanish was basically zero um and then along the way i was i made i made the effort to learn spanish as i went um by a couple of methods i was doing a bit of duolingo and then i had a spanish lesson podcasts as well and because we had our bluetooth headsets and our helmets mm -hmm. i would just be riding up on three hours a day just listening to spanish talking in my ears and um so the first the first half of the trip um with manuel it my spanish improved quite a lot but it definitely not, did yeah yeah it, it got pretty good like by the time we'd got to sort of panama colombia i was able to have full conversations with people and wow. chat to locals um and everything they because everything you do day in day out you know regarding sort of directions on the bike or food or telling people what you're up to obviously that is a very um highly like repeated conversation you have it with every person you meet so you become extremely fluent in your relevant topics of what you're up to yeah. so that will become very easy um and then so yeah and then having manuel meant that we definitely at the start we relied on him a lot um which kind of stunted the the learning process a bit really because we would always just turn around and <laughs> let manuel, <laughs> manuel do all the work but so for me, the trip uh, got broken up into two legs because I got offered a job whilst I was in Peru um, to go and work on a boat board in Peru and went away for, um, I think it was about six, seven months and then returned uh, to continue the trip from Lima um, with my girlfriend at the time at that point. And so the second leg, I'd gone, um, I got offered a offered a job whilst we were riding down through Peru um, on a on another boat and so and it was a, it was a good job so I flew out took that job and was away for seven months I ended up storing my motorbike with a, a man in, in Lima Peru um, in his garage there and then returned six seven months later after going away and working for it so i at that point well, lima was where things broke up but regarding the the spanish learning that meant then when i went back to continue the trip um i wasn't I, there yeah, <laughs> I then didn't where, where, where were you manuel so <clears throat> i um at, so at, sam got offered this job and so i guess job that he couldn't really up to Lima because it yeah. was a place that you could probably find a find a good spot to leave your motorbike and, and to fly out from and to fly out um so your intention was to come back yeah. um the, that's where all three of our paths sort of went went off so I was I think I had quite a few bits and pieces to to repair on my motorbike I needed a new I was, I was waiting on a new sprocket, rear sprocket. Um, I needed in bits and pieces. Um, John, who was, um, by this point, I think 
running out of time as well and maybe running out of money hmm. and decided to go off. So I stayed with Sam in, in Lima to arrange. I think we ended up staying there for about 10 days trying to arrange appropriate place for you to leave your motorbike and things like that. John headed off up into Peru to sort of go. I think he went to see Machu Picchu mm -hmm. and then um, it was quite funny because he was adamant about sort of get, he, he was in quite a rush at this point and sort of just wanted to get the trip done. And we had taken a long time really to get down through Central America and then spent a long time and spent over a month in Colombia and then a long time in Ecuador and, and we'd what, been in Peru for over a month. What was and the was time really frame? <laughs> um, <laughs> originally, <laughs> originally, I don't what was the original time? The original time frame playing ridiculously was about three to four months. Ooh. Which was what kind of it took us to get down to Panama. Wow. Yeah. We yeah, we hadn't even made it out of Central America by that point. So he shot off um which was fine and I think the idea was for me to then we were basically it was going to be myself and John to finish the trip and Sam was going to come and do it at a later date um, but before I'd even set off and um, sort of once sorted Sam out with his place to leave his motorbike and sort of the, the there were sort of some other things that you had to sort out in terms of keeping your bike there for an extended yeah. amount of time there was sort of things that I had to speak with uh, the other one us there, the sort of um, yeah, immigration to, on having an extended because when permit. You, obviously, when you enter each country, you get a temporary import permit, um, most of which tend to be a couple of months up to maybe six months, depending on the country. Mm -hmm. um, so then that meant with me leaving to go and work for a few months, I can't just leave the bike there without doing anything because then when I come back, if I try and leave the country exiting, they'll turn around and say, well, why have you overstayed your yeah. temporary import so long? So you have to, you have to uh, do what's basically a temporary import suspension, mm -hmm. um, suspend your import permit, which means you, you have to have it stored off the road somewhere. You have to get a local policeman to come and see where you stored the bike and write a report saying that it's, you know, in this address with this person, um, which you then have to file with uh, the local customs border control, um, and they'll issue with the suspension. And then when you come back into the country, you just restart your temporary import permit, essentially, and you can go on from there. Um, well, that sounds so the, simple enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, if the border crossings weren't complicated enough, that was that yeah. definitely. There's a lot of paperwork back and forth. And then I, I managed to complicate it even further for myself because I only, the original plan, so the job that I took um, was a rotational position, which meant that I would be working 10 weeks on, 10 weeks off. So my original plan was, okay, I'll go away, work for 10 weeks, and then I'll come back and finish off the trip uh, in the two and, two and a half months that I have off. Um, next time and then I came to realize and was informed by Manuel who continued the trip that it was already out and he spoke to some locals and he, he told me he was like well 
if you're planning on coming back at that time, it, it's going to be snow and ice in Ushuaia in Southern America. You're, you're not even going to be able to do it then. Um, Wait, and so where I, are you at, at this point? So Sam, he, uh, like Sam was saying, he was planning on coming back after two and a half months. When he flew out from Lima, I continued the trip on my own in the end because before I even set off and before Sam had organized his, his sort of place to keep his bike, John had gone off and uh, <laughs> he ended up blowing. I think he ended up, what did he do? He over-tightened... Over um, his oil drain plug from, yeah. the, uh, from the crankcase of the engine um, and managed to shear off. So he didn't <laughs> even manage to strip the bolt as he screwed it in. He was screwing it in and managed to crack off part of the engine casing, which is obviously cast aluminium, so it's not. Um, yeah, so he, he over-tightened his engine drain plug and uh, cracked open his uh, the engine casing. Um, but he, John also has the le the least sort of deft touch when it comes to mechanical things. John's a bit of a gorilla. I don't think you <laughs> mind me saying. And so he, even prior to this, a good example of that is he managed to kick the <laughs> kick his Kickstarter clean off his bike at one point. Amazing! I've never heard of that. <laughs> he kicked it so hard that he, yeah, he managed to shear the the base of the Kickstarter. Um, so he already had a Kickstarter permanently welded onto his, um, <laughs> onto onto the side of his bike on the little spindle there. Um, and so yeah, and then this this next issue, he over over tightened the plug, cracked the ending casing, and at this point he was just over it. He threw his hands up in the air, and he managed to sell the bike that very same afternoon to wow. a local guy. He had no interest in in trying to get that fixed by then because it was just it was a yeah a bit of a nightmare. Wow. Um, so he flogged flogged that and then got on the the next bus to Santiago, Chile, and and was on on his way back to the states. Which he was very sad, obviously, to not be able to finish the trip. But I think by that point, with everything going on, breaking the bike, he, I think he was just. Yeah, over it and really and relieved to be done, home, yeah. kind of get back and earn some money again. And so I think he, the plan was for me to stay with Sam until his his uh, like storage of his bike was sorted, and he flew out, and then I was going to try and catch up with John. Mm -hmm. But um, ironically, the day you flew out um, for 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 your job was the day that. John flew out back to the States. So then I was effectively left as the, oh. <laughs> as the last man standing. And I, I headed out uh, from Lima on my own, continued with the intention to finish the trip, which I did do. Um, hey. Um, <laughs> yeah. Manuel likes to remind me of that regularly. <laughs> I, did, I, I did it in two parts, but <laughs> every time we bring it up, man, I was like, "Well, I'm the only one who did it properly because I did it in one one stint. I didn't have to take two attempts." I think there's a bit of bitterness in the fact that I did it in a much. I mean, when when by the end, like the last month <laughs> of my trip was quite um, quite tough. It was way. It was very very cold. I was kind of racing the winter at this point down through the bottom of Chile and Argentina and um, it was pretty miserable and I think you you don't really realize on a map but 
towards the end of that trip is just very, this sort of barren land and like massive distances between towns and it's quite a sort of um, contrast to the the traveling you do in Central America where you're you know hot and mm-hmm. doing you know you're, you're only doing a few maybe a hundred kilometers a day and you're going through plenty towns once you very, get to the very bottom very sparsely there, sparsely populated in yeah in America just because it's it's much more exposed cold when you let like for obvious reasons you know everyone <laughs> people would rather settle in the center where it's uh, you know more reasonable climate extremely windy and also i guess your morale is when you're on your own which i was it's hard you know there's a, you have to motivate yourself and uh if things go wrong which they still do when you're on the or when you're on your own <laughs> even little coming. things uh become a lot harder so what happened i mean i was very lucky that i learn a lot of mechanical kind of at least the basics of well a lot of things went wrong before sam left and um i was sort of smart enough to to sort of sit with sam when he repaired things on the bikes or what or you know any any little thing so i was pretty in pretty well prepared i thought to to sort of deal with things by this point because this was sort of six or seven months into our trip now mm-hmm. um and I bought um, in before I left, once I realized that John wasn't going to be there and Sam was leaving, I bought a whole toolkit. And um, yeah, I did. I, uh, I was I was pretty well prepared. But what I wasn't prepared for was the cold. It, it just got <laughs> extremely cold. Um, basically, as, as soon as I left Peru and got into, you sort of drive down the Atacama Desert, which is quite hot in the day but very cold for yeah. camping and that was kind of the last hot section and i i was just dreaming of sort of heated hand grips uh, <laughs> at, the, at the end of the trip and um i think that's why i i rub it into sam that i did it in one go because he he did the same stretch of that trip later on in a much better time of year and it was uh you know just I think probably a lot nicer mm-hmm. I was yeah. I was really racing racing the winter to get there that, in that time was a, a knock-on effect of our naivety and how long we expected the trip to take of three to four months had we actually done that we'd have been hitting southern America uh, in their summertime but because uh, by that point it was probably more like seven eight months it meant we Manuel had passed all the way through summer and now was hurtling towards winter at a, a, a hand-chilling pace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and heading south yeah. the whole way to the cold. Yeah. yeah. So something, f- for example, in Central America where I had John and Sam with me, something as simple as a, a, a puncture, which would normally be like a no big deal, you know, you could two people to help you lift the bike and put something under and change the, you know, or repair the puncture to get the tire out when you're on your own and you have sort of your hands are numb and I, I have Raynard. So like the blood sort of just drains from my fingers and um, there's no one there to help you. So you end up having to sort of 
hoist your like you can hoist your bike up under a sign if you've got one nearby or if not you just have to you know take your fuel tank off and um, just lay your bike on its side but something like that once I was on my own became like a, a big portion of the day yeah and um I yeah I don't know if I enjoyed the last that very last that last month was just kind of tough and I only I just willed myself to get to the bottom just purely to it would have felt like a quite anticlimactic to not make it right to the bottom because Ushuaia is kind of the end of end of the road and which is where um, I got so yeah it was sort of I did arrive with snow and ice and sort of sub-zero temperatures and it's quite nice to see some of some of the photos that Sam took along along the trip sort of the second part when he was there because we ended up taking we were looking recently through photos we ended up stopping and taking photos in, in the same spots mm-hmm. and it's oh, just cool. uh very different you know basically six months apart really yeah. almost so i didn't get there in the winter but I, I think i pushed it as far as i would have wanted to in terms of making it uh and yeah it was it was a shame not to finish it as a three, as we set off. Yeah, it would have been it would have been good, but it's you know things crop up along the way, and it was it, it's just you've got to do what you've got to do. I I'm glad to have you know had that the ability to go back and continue. Although I just couldn't say no to that that job at the time, and I'm glad that I I did go and do that because I didn't realise. So um, during the trip, I never even bothered checking my bank account because before setting off, Manuel and John were the two that were most concerned about money and thought that they were going to be tight for money. And so I just boldheadedly, I was like, well, I think I've got more money than these guys, so I'm just going to use them as my gauge. If they're still going, I'm probably still good. <laughs> and so I literally didn't look at my bank account the whole way down. Um, and then I end up flying out from Lima after having stored my bike there. Um, and I got back to the UK for 10 days before going to join the boat that I was going to work on. Um, and I checked my bank account and I realized I only had one and a half thousand left in, in the bank um, which we still needed to get from Peru through Chile, Argentina, flights home and everything. So I, I didn't realize, but I, if I'd carried on, I actually would have run out of, <laughs> out of money yeah. and I didn't see that coming. So that was, um, that was luckily avoided. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was interesting. Really, but so you, you come back away. from being away, you come back with a lady and the two of you finish the trip. Yeah, exactly. So I went, I spent seven months away. So because as I was saying earlier about the, the timing of winter, so I originally planned to have 10 weeks away, come back, continue the trip. Um, I then postponed it another 20 weeks. So the original 10 weeks that I had off, I didn't do that. So I you know, spent holiday back home instead of 10 weeks, went away, worked another 10 weeks. And then that put me nicely back into sort of springtime um, the next springtime for South America, um, which worked out really well. And then I con- conveniently managed to lose my job um, when I flew out to return to carry on with the trip um, because 
with my job as it was 10 weeks on 10 weeks off it meant i then had a slim 10 week window to finish the trip um which would have been possible that's that's roughly uh, what manuel did it in but he kind of had to blast through um because of weather and that's why he did it so quickly and so for me to fit those the rest of the trip into those 10 weeks would have been possible but it would have been pushing you know pushing for for time um and then yeah so the day of leaving the boat to go back to the trip um the boat that i was working on got sold to new owners um and they they changed the crew and didn't you know they didn't so i was told as i left the left the boat oh by the way you're not going to have a job to come back to here which normally most people would be gutted about but that was really great because that meant then i just had an open-ended amount of time really to to finish the trip off nice. um and so yeah then my with my girlfriend mystery at the time on the um she's from alaska so i she flew in to join me in lima peru um I went back there with my arm in a sling because I'd managed to uh, get a, a grade two separation of my AC joint in my shoulder oh, in an accident in, <laughs> in Europe before flying out, which was perfect timing. So all the advice from doctors was, no, you're not going back there to continue the trip. And I was Yeah, like, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> and they, they, yeah they don't because people... The advice from everyone people see motorcycle riding and they it's uh it's a mode of transport that involves using it you know you're riding a bike you use your hands you're holding handlebars and so people think oh oh no you, you know you couldn't possibly be doing that uh with a shoulder injury because that's that's only going to exacerbate and make it worse but anyone who actually rides a bike knows that you're I mean, unless you're riding motocross, you know, we, I'm just riding road riding and the occasional tracks and things on um, on the trip. And you, you're not, there's not really anything strenuous. If you're doing strenuous actions with your hands through the handlebars, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I, in my head, I was like, nah, it's going to be fine. I'll be all right. And I went back and uh, the process of getting the bike back on the road upon returning to Lima that took about two weeks in the end, um, which afforded me basically perfect amount of time to, to get the shoulder healed. Um, and then, yeah, so that was myself and mystery two up on a Honda XR 400, um, from Lima all the way to Ushuaia and then from Ushuaia up to Buenos Aires. Um, so that really, if we thought we tested the bike <laughs> up to that point, bike. that was absolutely nothing. Yeah, because that bike's we, not set up for two up. It's not set up, no. <laughs> it's not set up for doing what we were doing in the first place with one person and all that luggage on. So then, yeah, with two people, two people's worth of Because I then had to oversize the bags. Um, mm -hmm. So we'd set off like my mom said we didn't have hard luggage we just had we had a rack a nice rack on the on the back of the bike that we'd managed to get um and then we just had three duffel bags essentially one strapped to either side and one one behind me um and then i had to get three more duffel bags sort of 50 percent bigger each one to then accommodate her luggage also um so yeah again we had similar to what happened in baja we had to 
<laughs> I could, we, we loaded. So we obviously had been waiting there to get the bike on the road for about two weeks. It was just sat in this guy's garage and we didn't really, you know, hadn't tested anything out, didn't know how it was going to work with two of us. We just hoped that everything, you know, was going to work out. And then when we finally got the bike back on the road, um, we during those two weeks, we must have stayed in about six or seven different Airbnbs around Lima, um, getting cheaper and cheaper each one we moved to because we have to spend longer and longer. And then we, yeah, we get the bike down to this Airbnb that we're staying in and pack all our bags up. And I put all the bags on the bike and we, neither of us even sat on it yet. I look at the bike and I just sank. I, I saw how low it was sitting just with the two people's luggage. Mm -hmm. And then I knew when I sat on it, I was already close to bottoming out the suspension. And I was just, I thought, oh no, I'm going to kill the bike. I didn't think it was going to make it. You know, I thought we were going to ride off the curb the first time and it yeah. was going to break in half, but we we sat on it and we took off and we did our first couple of days trip. And then we stayed somewhere and had a big clear out of all, it, it was coping, but we, we did do a big clear out of all our luggage because we realized we were overpacked and um, myself going back to it, I knew how light I could pack and what I could get away with, whereas mystery coming in then as a new addition, um, I, I gave her one duffel bag to, to fill and that was like her allotment. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't too explicit with how, you know, how tight we needed to be. So she showed up with that duffel bag full and then another backpack as well on top of that. Um, and so, yeah, we had to have a big throw out of shoes and clothes and books and just everything, anything <laughs> heavy. Yeah. We had had a couple of books each of anything heaviest just had to go and we, all the luggage and the bike was a trooper. It made it through unbelievable terrain and me, you know, taking off-road shortcuts and then ending up like going through ridiculous rutted rain, rain rutted out, um, like dirt potholes and all sorts and bottoming out the suspension and left, right and center. And it just, it kept on going. <laughs> I don't know if I feel more sorry for the bike or for mystery on the back. I, yeah. I, I just can't believe that Mystery's you did it with a, a second person. On yeah. She must yeah. be a trooper to it be was, able to put up with all that. Yeah. yeah. I, I lost count of how many times I said to her, I was like, I cannot believe like you incredible for sitting on the back and putting up with what you, what you've put up with. And, um, yeah, I being on the front is, it wasn't, it's not too much of an uncomfortable bike, but I can't even imagine being sat on the back of that thing and not even the comfort of it, but just not being the one in control of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, bikes are fun to ride when you're the one managing it and you know what you're about to do with the throttle and the brakes and leaning into corners when you're at the mercy of the other person and you're, yeah, and you've got me up front riding recklessly <laughs> and... <laughs> taking you down crazy roads and things. I was, yeah, very, very um, commendable that she managed to stay on the back and didn't turn around at some point and say, I'm over this. <laughs> yeah. But she um, stuck it out. That's was, awesome. Yeah, it was really good. And I, and half of it was, was just the, uh, you know, keeps you going. It's just knowing that you're doing something 
a little bit ridiculous and something that shouldn't really be done and that you know you meet up with other riders that are riding bikes twice the size just for one person you know everyone does mm-hmm. the cliche bmw ds 1200s and brand new africa twins and this that and the other and they're all their heated jackets and yeah, you don't need all that we pull up on a 20 year old 400 cc dirt bike with two people on the, on the back and set up camp and <laughs> yeah people are in always impressed you know it's, so that was like part of the fun for me was knowing that i was doing it in a, in a unique way that no one else around us was really doing and you just know that any for me that's the first trip i mean not didn't have anyone on the back but I just know that's probably going to be probably the hardest trip <laughs> and I'll ever have to do on a bike. I know I'll be more equipped and have better gear next trip I do in a, you know, that in a few t- years time. Where will um, the next trip take you? Oh man. I mean, I still, I still don't have my, my bike license. That's something that I'm in the process of getting now. So I actually just last week, um, I, I completely ran out of money when I got to Ushuaia. So I sold my XR400 to a guy that had um, an exhaust um, sort of workshop. Did like uh, a bit of a crazy guy, really. Um, I, was, I was sort of going around Ushuaia, which is quite a small... It's a, it's well, it's like a small city, really, isn't it? It's, and it's yeah. um, it was completely the wrong time of year. It was just coming into winter, where you wouldn't be able to drive a bike, um, and also the fact that it's an American motorbike, so anyone buying it wouldn't really be allowed to ride ride it legally mm-hmm. anyway, because mm-hmm. it only had a temporary import for myself. Um, but yeah, I found this guy and, and ended up selling it to him for just about enough money to cover my flight back to London. Um, and I was quite sad really to, that was my first motorbike, I'd, the, the first bike I'd ever owned and I'd sort of done quite a, quite a, quite a, an amazing trip with it, you know, over 20,000 kilometers down through Central America, South America. And I was... I'd always intended to try and keep it and maybe ship it home, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Sam did at the end of his trip. Um, but I have just bought, I just found one just down the road. I mean, I live in Cornwall now in, in the southwest of England. And um, I just found about two weeks ago an XR400. I think it's one year older than the one I had, but it's in pristine condition. And it's actually an American bike that had, has been imported a few years ago. Yeah, and, um, yeah. And you don't, you don't see them that often for sale around here. Yeah. So I wasn't, I don't know how I found it. Cause I wasn't looking for a motorbike, but, um, it was kind of, I don't know the sort of, it was a, the impulse buy. Some sort of algorithm <laughs> brought it to me, and uh, it was a sort of yeah nostalgia sort of driven impulse buy. So I now have an XR four hundred here in Cornwall, so <laughs> and I am getting my license. But um, as for next trip, I'm I don't know. I'm, I'll, I I don't know, but I know that I'll be more prepared. And I, I I I mean, I set out from San Diego as a complete novice. 
and um, I like to think I'm quite a competent rider now, even though I don't actually actually have a. We a still license. can wheelie though. If there's anyone else uh, out there that wants to teach no, us to proper wheelie. wheelies, no. No, I, I can't wasn't. proper wheelie either. <laughs> it, it, it was not worth worth the risk during the trip. It was a mix of being worried them. about hurting myself and uh, enough to sort of stop stop the trip or hurting the bike enough to, <laughs> to sort of put an end to the trip. So I never re- we never really, there were days where we'd sort of stop and take all the gear off our bikes and then you realise how fun these motorbikes are without, yeah. you know, all the weight of your spare parts and tools and luggage and, and you strip them right down and yeah, they are really the great bikes. Um, and they are pretty, they were just, yeah, very heavily loaded for for most of the trip weren't they but um no no wheelies yet uh <laughs> <laughs> that's on the to-do list no, 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 no. but um who knows i don't know i'd like to do i'd like to do a trip down maybe down down through uh through europe and i don't know if i'll do another big one like that again because it's just having it's finding a, a time in your life where you've saved up enough money and and also have the freedom or if you're in between jobs or lucky enough to, which I was, or lucky enough to sort of have a job that allows you to take that much time off, which is rare, Yes, I think. Yeah. Well, maybe you can start out after getting your license going straight to like John O'Groats, because that could be like one of the longer runs in the UK. Yeah, from and I live very near Land's End, which is kind of, that's quite a common path, you know, from the, the, further, the most southerly point to the most northerly point of the UK. Yeah, that would be a, Go up to John O'Groats and then hop on a ferry to, well, you can go back down a bit, but to Isle of Man, do the circuit, and then <laughs> hop on the next boat and go over to Spain, and then you're in Europe, you're in mainland Europe, you can go do that travel, man. Exactly, yeah. And it's just, um, it stemmed from, you know, just a, a, a call f- a, from Sam um, offering up this trip, and it's just something that, you know, if I'd said no when he, when he invited me on this trip, um I don't think I'd, I'd know, like, like now it's something that I'm definitely going to do. You know, I, don't, I can't wait to do another bike trip and it's something that I'm going to always want to do for the rest of my life. But if I had, if, if sort of things hadn't worked out, that I was finishing a job at the time and, ha- and had some savings and was like quite up for, you know, game to do something a bit different. Um, if I hadn't said yes, which is why I thought at the time, you know, if I don't, if I don't do this trip with Sam, I'm never going to do a trip like that again. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that spark kind of sparked a bit of a, well, I guess it is a passion or some, something that I want to continue doing. You're a motorbike and I'm I guess I'm a You're a biker boy. <laughs> I'm a biker <laughs> Yes. So, um, who knows? Yeah. I have to come back over your way as well. I think, um, back to the States. I didn't get to explore enough of that. I mean, it was a sh- you hear about a lot of people doing similar trips from from Alaska, you know, and doing the whole west coast of the states. And maybe it'd be nice to do a trip where you you um, link up sort of a section up to the point where we started. Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe link it up and do uh do the west coast, yeah, and through you know Canada and the states. And That'd be an awesome trip. That'd be amazing. And I'd, I'd be, I'd have heated hand grips. That's, <laughs> I don't care what bike I have. That's just one thing. Yeah, I don't want to 
was meaning for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you shipped your bike back, Sam, and you still yes, have it? Yes, I do. So Manuel got the, the bragging rights of finishing the trip in one... Number one. One single sitting, but... I get to brag that I managed to bring the bike from the trip home and it is now sat in my garage. Yeah, I actually, um, so I, Manuel made it to Ajoire and then flew out from there and I, I reached Ajoire as well and then ended up doing a, a two-week bolt up the east coast uh, to Buenos Aires to, to ship my, well, air freight my bike out from Buenos Aires back to the UK. And by sheer coincidence, it even ended up on the same flight as me. Oh, nice! Um, so I, I was sat on. The, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even clock that until I got back to the UK, and then I checked the flight number that the bike was on that I was on, and I, I didn't even realize, but it was sat underneath me in the airplane for the whole flight home. So I never even managed to get more than uh, a few hundred meters away from the bike. Which oh, that's is, cool. Yeah, really cool. Um, so yeah, it, it turned out that was something I'd be, I'd had in my mind that if it was plausible and not too extortionate to do so, I wanted to keep hold of the bike, you know, after a, a trip like that and that yeah, you become attached to it undoubtedly. And when you're looking at this machine that has carried you so far and shown you, you know, taking you to so many places and didn't, didn't complain too much the whole way, you know, you've got to, you've got to, if you can look after it and bring it back and keep it, then yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's definitely, definitely what I wanted to do. And it wasn't wasn't too much really to to get shipping back to the UK. And so yeah, jumped at that opportunity. Um, so now that's that's sat in the garage, awaiting awaiting its its rebuilds now, which will be much more thorough and <laughs> well done than the last. Yeah. yeah rebuild that i did um it's, it's still running fine the bike like no issues with it um ran perfectly and the the only thing is now it's it started drinking a fair bit of oil towards the end um so yeah i think the valve seals or piston rings one of the two is is leaking leaking a bit of oil but probably just the valve seals i imagine but i think i'm going to do a new sort of top end on it and get it brand spanking you again and yeah should yeah. be good well i hope you guys get to like you know ride off into the sunset together on your matching bikes again <laughs> yeah in proper time and you well, get then, and you get yourself a license and work your way up there to the well your license yeah, is a little yeah, bit different uh, that's it's gonna happen it's gonna happen uh, very soon cool well, thanks for sitting down with me, guys. I guess like internationals sit down with me. Um, and I hope to get to see you guys soon. And thanks for doing yeah. this. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tom, for you, having us. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Do you want to do any shout outs to Instagram? Or well, I know, Sam, you shoot 35 millimeters. So that makes you cooler than us. Um, is there anywhere to <laughs> find you? Yeah, man. Well, if anyone wishes to, at, at Sam J. Lang. Um, but it, yeah, it is all 35 mil photos. It's not very motorbike based, but. I don't know if you like the photography on there. That's great. How about you, Manuel? Um, and yeah, I also shoot. Uh, I shot a lot of film through for the trip, which I have posted. But my Instagram handle is very long. It's my full name, which is Manuel Beiro Romero. And um, you might just 
it might be easier just to find me through Sam's. Uh, <laughs> through Sam's well, I'll, I'll post links to both of them. Wacky stuff. Perfect. All right, boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, nice, uh, nice to see you again, Tom, and chat with you. Yeah, guys. And uh, we'll talk thank soon. You. Yeah.